Hello, and welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast. I'm Jeffrey Stackert. And I'm Kevin Hector. And we are very pleased to have with us today Aaron Walsh, who is Assistant Professor of New Testament and Early Christian Literature here at the University of Chicago. She's a scholar of late antiquity, especially Syriac Christianity. And so welcome, Aaron. Oh, thank you for having me. So we want to talk to you a little bit today about your work on women in antiquity. And I know that you taught a class recently about this topic, uh, and it's a focus of, of some of your research. So uh, maybe to start off, uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you do on women in antiquity and maybe how you got into this topic. Um, yeah, so I think uh, I've always been interested in biblical interpretation and how Christians retold and thought about uh, biblical stories. And when I started studying Syriac and learning more about Syriac literature, one of the features of Syriac literature is that um, female figures from scripture and female holy uh, figures are very prominent in this literature. That itself doesn't have any women authors. Um, so that's an enduring question for me is why, why are um, Syriac authors fascinated with women in, the, in uh, the biblical stories and that they want to expand these stories and give these women speech? So I can't help but ask, why are they so interested in women characters, especially these characters that in biblical texts are oftentimes so flat and undeveloped? Um, well, I I'm, we'll have to see what my book develops, this, this question. Um, and there are certainly other wonderful scholars who have been asking uh, this same um, question. Um, I think part of it is that there, these, these uh, congregations did have women in them. So this was a way of speaking to half of your congregation was to have to expand stories that dealt with women. But also there is an ability to identify with some of these women, especially the, the stories that I focused on were some of the unnamed women of the New Testament who um, were suffering from disease or a sinful spotty past. And um, there's something very relatable um, for us humans and our kind of uh, troubles with these with these figures. Could you take us in a little bit deeper into at least one of an example of this, what it looks like? Okay. Um, so uh, my dissertation in the what now is the book project started with doing an edition and a translation of a poem by a poet named Narsai, who wrote Nisibis, wrote in Syriac, and this is sort of the second generation of Syriac authors after Ephraim, who most people are familiar with if they know anything about Syriac. Um, and Narsai does not write very often about women and was largely left out of accounts of, of women and, and uh, gender in Syriac studies. And he, this, this one untranslated, unedited poem is all about the Canaanite woman, um, who of course is famous because Jesus refers to her as a dog. And it's very, it's an exegetically very naughty, you know, story. And it's not one that many... Uh, you have a lot of early Christian authors commenting on. I mean, Augustine uh, comments on it, and it's taken up by a lot of later authors. Um, it's just a, not a popular story. And yet Narsai crafts this very long poem um, retelling her story. She's in a struggle with, with the devil himself, actually, Satan. Um, and Jesus praises her for her boldness, which in the, the Syriac word is actually chutzpah. Um, and I, I'm fascinated, and one of the things I want to explore in the book is why boldness as a theological 
virtue and how it's very much tied to it's, it's on a spectrum with humility it's like the other face of the coin mm-hmm. of humility um but to make the Canaanite woman as the model that we are all called, that Jesus is actually using this interaction with the Canaanite woman to call us all to this sort of holy boldness. Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, so how would that play out? Like if, if this Canaanite woman is a kind of paradigm for boldness, what does spiritual boldness look like or what does boldness look like in this religious context uh, for these Syriac Christians? And I think, well, one of the things that's fascinating with Narsai specifically is that we have less a sense of his congregation um, because he was the teacher of exegesis at the school of Nisibis. So it's quite possible that a lot of his poetry was just performed for all men. Um, probably on Sundays and, and certain holy days, they would allow women into um, into the church there. Not someone like Jacob of Sarug and Ephraim, who we know had women in their audiences and are performing these texts. That's, this is a very different circumstance. I think, and this is something I'm just thinking, I'm working on, and how boldness comes up in other poems and with other figures, um, is that we're supposed to be bold in preserving and protecting our own soul and and, and in seizing the faith. Um, And the same words, and and there are different... um, different words for boldness and audacity and some of them are attached to eve and of course she is the she's an example of impudence and we don't want to go that far mm-hmm. but if we're bold out of love and especially love for the divine then that redeems boldness in a certain way then humans can uh, assert themselves and women can assert themselves which i think is always an interesting uh kind of feature can you say more about that in particular so how does gender fit into mm-hmm. this so is uh impudence the bad trait that but boldness is okay and how does that fit in with uh, the universe of gender when Narsai was mm-hmm. writing so the one um, work of Narsai that was usually talked about and, and evidence for him being you know it is an outright misogynist was mm-hmm. his poem on Eve and her daughters and it is all about you know she paints her face with boldness and impudence and and I do think he's he's if you look at the language that he uses for Eve, the mirror image is for the Canaanite woman, mm. not for Mary, which I think is interesting. There are more, it's not just Eve, Mary is the typology that you see in many mm. authors. There's this third triangulation. I think partly because the Canaanite woman is more relatable, but one of the features of Narsai's work is that he also says that the Canaanite woman is a slave because he goes through the lineage of Ham. Um, which is further marginalizing her. Not only is she a woman, and of course with the Canaanite, she's a non-Israelite woman, but she's also a slave woman. And to have a slave woman speaking, um, I think that's very much a feature of how he's crafting her character. And um, yeah, I think boldness is usually one of the vices that Eve exemplifies, but all women are prone to, you know, over, overreaching for power. Uh, so this is not a boldness in pursuit of power. It's a boldness in pursuit of, you know, eternal good. Okay. I think. A kind of spiritual boldness yeah. is okay. Yeah. I think so. Okay. I think so. I'm working on it. Yeah. No, that's but, good. Yeah. Is this at odds with, um, at least potentially, so you said one of the reasons that you think these women figures received so much attention is because, I mean, there are women in the congregations, mm-hmm. there, there are women who are looking for spiritual exemplars, and so it makes sense to lift up some of these right. women. Um, but it doesn't sound maybe like that's what Narsai at least was doing. 
Um, so is yeah. this a different strand of why women would be prominent, do you think? Um, I'm not sure yet. Uh, I certainly don't think Narsai or any of these poems want women in their audience to be bold. Mm. I think that's one of, you know, th this, it's important to see that I think when we're talking about women in literature, it's very much, um, we're, we have access, and this actually would be, I think, an important question if you want to lead to, is that we're talking about the ideologies that shape women's existences mm -hmm. rather than the voices of women themselves. Mm -hmm. um, Can I ask you a little bit about that? Because yeah. you've referenced a few times women in the audience, mm -hmm. right? And you've referred to a few authors, Ephraim, Jacob of Saru. Right. They probably have women in their audiences. Uh, how do we know about women in the audience? How do we know about, like you say, there's a difference mm -hmm. between the literary depiction of these women and the real experiences of women in these religious contexts. Right. How do we know about the latter? Yeah, I think this is a larger question. I mean, I started my work in the West with mm -hmm. Augustine, and of course, you know, we have letters to women, and of course these women did write mm -hmm. back, but we don't have those correspondences. So we have one part of the conversation there. Um, and then when we're thinking about um, and it's, I think it's very it, it, homilies and how homilies address issues that are related to women and sort of, you know, with Chrysostom, address women in his audience so we know that they're there. Mm -hmm. um, the, here we have, I mean, of course, with Ephraim, one of, one of the things that's famous in terms of Ephraim's poetry is that in some genres you would have women performing it, so his female choirs, and he was not, noted for this. Um, so we have evidence there. Poetry doesn't have as many traces as the homilies do with actually talking about women in the audiences themselves. Um, so we have to extrapolate a little bit more. And it comes more from like the life of Ephraim talking about him training mm -hmm. these choirs. Um, so it's very, I mean, it's very trace. And for Narsai, we don't have, we have almost very, almost no clues about the performance of these texts, only that it was within this setting. Mm -hmm. But the poetry itself contains far fewer um, clues than homilies do. I think that's one of the challenges to it. And it's one of the things that we don't have the response of the people who were listening mm. to these works. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges that I brought up in class is how do we study women and other marginalized, you know, poor people and, and, and sort of those who are not writing, whose writings we, we don't, we only have the writings of wealthy um, men largely and men in positions of power. And I think I don't want to give up on the project. I think there are two extremes. I think there's a very overly optimistic view that we actually have the voices of women in these texts, and I don't think Syriac poetry gives us that. Mm -hmm. And then there's a very pessimistic, you know, the whole project is doomed. All we have are the women in the imaginary of men. And I think that's overly pessimistic because I think these men knew women. They mm -hmm. grew up with women. They uh, Some of them were married to women. <laughs> they have experiences of, they have relationships, and they... I think I personally am very influenced by one of my mentors, Elizabeth Clark, and she has a wonderful article on uh, The Lady Vanishes, and it's all about how we have access to the ideologies that shaped women's lives. So when I'm studying these texts, what I'm thinking, what I, what I think I'm doing is I'm trying to get us back to understand the environment in which women and marginalized people lived. Um, and how do we get access to that? And how can we better understand and have a fuller account of those communities through that? Mm -hmm. So let me ask, when you teach this material mm -hmm. to students um, and you're introducing them for the first time to women in late antiquity, where do you start? 
Oh, like, boy. What's, what's the point of, of entry for students who don't have familiarity with this kind of material? I think it's hard. I mean, I think one of the, so I taught more, it was more than just, a, uh, I'd love someday to do a course on women in leadership positions within the church. I think it, it was very hard to fit all of the things I wanted to do in the course. And I did broaden it to be gender more, you know, to not, to take the focus on women and how gender is being constructed, because then that allows you to have interesting conversations about masculinity and mm-hmm. how that is often structured over and against the feminine and, and female. Um, so I, and I also didn't want to do, normally I think a lot of courses that I've taken on early Christian um, readings about women will often have a day on Greco-Roman antecedents to this and then um, maybe a couple of Jewish sources but then launch into the New Testament and later Christian material. And I really tried to keep all three traditions alive um, and to do a lot of rabbinic literature as well mm-hmm. to kind of see that this was competing voices and the um, quote-unquote pagan that that's not all pre-Christian. That's something that's still alive within the first centuries and a viable option. And these are mutually um, constitutive. Um, and I start a lot on on um, the course head critical theory as a part of it. So we we start with Simone de Beauvoir and the second sex and talking about social construction because I think that is a way that students can even though I think the, the, those ideas have been nuanced quite a bit in more contemporary critical theory. I think it's an important way for especially students who haven't studied gender or late antiquity to start getting purchase on that material. Um, I also think that biblical interpretation is a great way. It it allows them to have a familiar text. They know the text of Genesis 1 through 3, Mm -hmm. and that was really the core biblical text because Christian authors keep going back to it all the time, Um, that that could be a unifying theme. Um, so I started from many different angles. I didn't have one mm-hmm. kind of entry point. Can I circle back to one of the things you mentioned earlier? You used the term ideology a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you want to be aware of the ideological dimension of mm-hmm. these writings, but not see them as nothing but ideology. Right. Yeah. So I'd be interested to hear you say a little bit more about what light your work sheds on what's called the politics of exemplarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does it function <laughs> ideologically? How does it outrun ideology? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, I think, and I actually brought this up in my class because I want my students to be able to appreciate both the beauty of some of these texts and also how they function to silence certain people hmm. or to curtail certain um, possibilities for often for women. Um, that's a hard balance because I think some students read these texts and all they feel is anger mm. about them. Um, you know, why is Eve being used against all women? Or how, how can we redeem reading a text like Narcissus' text on Eve and not just see it as um, trying to control mm-hmm. a certain segment of the, uh, of the population and how it upholds a certain um, view of hierarchy? And I think that's why a lot of these authors keep going back to Genesis 1 through 3. Um, This might be a roundabout way of answering this question, but it's how I think about it. Right, no, this is great. Um, And I think the important word that I want them to always trouble is when authors are making claims about nature. Hmm. And that word, I think, is uh, within a Christian context is one of the most important. Whether you're reading authors in the West, 
Latin, Greek, Syriac, any authors, how they're, how they're narrating the structure, the structures that uphold society. Mm-hmm. And this goes back, I mean, this predates Christian ideas. If you read Cicero, Deoficiis, you know, there's a, there's a certain view about hierarchy in society. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in terms of ideology, one of the ways that I want to trouble it is because I think the questions, the contemporary question that I would want to ask for feminist theology, mm-hmm. for instance, and it's not my field, but it's one that I think is interesting, is how, you know, how wedded is Christian theology to the idea of hierarchy? Mm-hmm. And how do, we, um, how do we recover some of these texts that are so strongly um, kind of based in hierarchy? So I think part of me using the word ideology is to um, trouble some ideas about theology and authority. That's great. Yeah. Are you also interested in texts that, shall we say, denaturalize what has been naturalized? Is there a history, of a kind of counter trajectory mm-hmm. of denaturalizing of hierarchy? Yeah, I think that's a great question um, to think about. I think especially if you were to follow that exegetically, you know, how are instances within Scripture in the New Testament? I'm thinking in Galatians when it says neither is neither male mm-hmm. nor female. I love that text and reading along with students different interpretations of that text mm. because that text is simultaneously taken up and lauded and yet swiftly curtailed. Right. And I see that a lot in the readings of these women, that mm. they're, um, you know, the, the, the Hemorrhaging Woman is another text mm. that I've worked on quite a bit. And she's lifted up for her self-assertion and boldness. But instantly authors like Jacob of Sarug say, have her put the words into her mouth that she is not bound by the same laws that uh, structure other women's existence because her body exceeds the bounds of nature. So I think oh, there is this kind of yeah. counter. Um, there, I think there are seeds mm-hmm. for denaturalizing mm-hmm. there, but yeah. even if they're not fully uh, actualized. How does her body exceed the bounds of nature? Because it doesn't stop overflowing. Yeah, and, and it's this wonderful, and I've been staying with this poem, I'm writing quite a bit on it, um, because she's addressing her own body but she also argues with the law because mm-hmm. they will read that. And this is a debate within contemporary New Testament studies about whether Leviticus is in the background of that New Testament mm. text. Um, but for Jacob, it is. And you have this woman argue with the law and say that Moses was writing for normal women, but her body is so, oh, you know, that it doesn't stop bleeding. This is not... This is an, and it, it's just a very interesting kind of disputation. Huh. Um, yeah. So, and as well, I, I, I'm looking for instances where people, where you have within Syriac literature, people addressing their own bodies. Mm. I think that's a fascinating kind of interiority that they're trying to show. Mm-hmm. Sure. So let me ask, in the construction of gender and sex in antiquity, your authors that you're reading, how are they understanding gender and sex how is it similar to how is it different from say the theorists that you said that you introduce students to in your course uh, to what extent is there a distinction being drawn mm-hmm. between contemporary ways of understanding gender and sex and what you read in the text uh, to what extent is there a continuity um oh continuity is going to be more difficult um, so i think you know on, on a sort of a quick way of of boiling down what i was bringing students to is that we do make a, a distinction, or we are beyond this now, I think, with Judith Butler and later theorists, but between sex and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that gender is this we associate more with society and how um, uh, what are the cultural scripts that we're supposed to apply um, I do think that division even if I think for contemporary gender theory is no longer useful I think for ancient texts it is a, a way of getting starting to unpack what they're doing but for an author like Augustine but also for the Syriac authors and Greek authors that I'm looking at you don't see um, you know the the biological body dictates you know they don't make it's not they don't separate gender and the performativity of it from the body itself um, you know you are born with a certain sex and that dictates certain uh, ways that you should be within society um, so try and and then we can look at those texts and say oh well how are they expecting women to act in terms of speech for instance and I try to get students to see that not everything is about sex it's also about how you comport yourself how you dress and then it's about class as well um, in the ancient world it, it's much uh, tighter sort of they don't make the distinction between sex and gender and that's one of the first steps to I think unpacking what they're doing is to is to try to not forcibly put that division there but see how they are uh, extrapolating from certain biological facts cultural and societal ideals and is biological sex just taken for granted is it a given or is there any theorization on what constitutes a male versus a female uh, you mean like ideas about, how, I mean, um, sort of Aristotelian ideas about the body and the Potentially soul? Potentially so. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't see as much of that in the authors that I'm mm -hmm. looking at specifically. Um, I think you, you know, you have someone like Gregory of Nyssa is, is on the making of man. There's a text you would go to when they're really thinking about where does gender right. come in. Um, most of the Syriac authors that I'm looking at aren't, aren't prying into that as yeah. much. Do some of these authors have sort of a proto-distinction between sex and gender insofar as they will at least grant some women something like honorary masculine status uh, insofar as they've been so thoroughly sanctified? Or is, is that just a reach and it's a way of maintaining as much of the status quo as they can and therefore it doesn't really qualify as drawing the distinction? So I think there are two directions you could go with that question. I think you can look at readings of Genesis where... Um, you know, of course, you have so much more in Augustine because he goes back to that text so many mm -hmm. times where it is really the fall mm -hmm. that starts to bring about some of the very hard-line distinctions between, you know, I would say, for men and women, especially consequences of the fall and sin. Um, of course, for him, the link between sin and sex after the fall and procreation um, is going to be one that he'll revisit quite a bit. Um, so I think when you see authors think about what would procreation be like if the fall had not happened, there you have, you know, where gender and, and the hierarchies, I think, it's more theoretical, so they can, they can level some things. Now, I think the other way you could see your question going is what about um, asceticism and mm -hmm. holiness? And there, one of the questions that we explored with the class is um, where you have ideas of ascetic women transcending their gender. Mm -hmm. And this is, I mean, this discourse is in earlier pre-Christian Greco-Roman philosophical texts about, um, you know, the virtues are, you know, our word virtue comes from the word for man. So, uh, you know, a woman who acts in an, a manly way is, is significant and distinct. Mm. Um, so I think certainly when you look at the 
uh, desert mothers, but also hagiography in general, these biographies of holy people. Mm -hmm. um, you see places there where women are, you know, escaping some of the, the their boundary or mm -hmm. they're escaping some of the limitations mm -hmm. of gender. Mm -hmm. So I think those are two ways you can see it exegetically, but also within the history of asceticism. Does this lead us back at all to our conversation on boldness where we started? Yes, because because also holy women can be bold, uh, not just biblical characters. And as part of what I was thinking about and, and for the book that I'm looking at is that boldness is usually attached to, of course, the female martyrs, um, but also female ascetic women. But I also want to argue that women within the biblical texts themselves were like a third group of women who could be, their boldness was sanctified. So from a, say, modern perspective, a modern critical perspective, is boldness good or is it bad or it's, it, it just is in these texts? I could imagine, mm -hmm. say, you know, maybe this is a way of asking about student responses mm -hmm. to the material that you're teaching. How do students respond to that? I could imagine uh, a feminist response being to reject boldness in its construction in these texts mm -hmm. and its assignment to women uh, or not. So, um, yeah, how do, how do students respond to this sort of thing? I think it gave them some pause. I mean, part of my immediate goal um, pedagogically was just to show them that um, these authors are capable of more than one view of women and that um, that they're, it's more complicated than just portraits of Eve and that these women were exemplars for them. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't really know personally what to do with these constructions of boldness. I think boldness is an idea that in the modern world we attach, we think it's a good, it's good to be audacious and bold and go after your dreams and um, speak boldly. I like to look at places in ancient texts where we're surprised by, to, to, find, to find these traces. And we could say, okay, well, they're, very tightly scripting these women that they have to be perfectly faithful and they have to be bold out of love. But I think there's something to be learned from about that as well, um, especially in how we think about humility, which I do think humility is a tough, it's an, I'm sort of alarmed sometimes about how we don't talk about humility. I don't know whether the students that I have think that humility is always a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to get back to, I, you know, I personally think it's kind of a, a virtue that you have to understand for these ancient texts. And I wonder whether we could benefit from it ourselves. And maybe this idea of a holy boldness gets us back to a conversation about humility. Does, speaking of the modern world, mm -hmm. does studying these texts shape the way you look at the way women are portrayed as exemplars in the contemporary world? Hmm. I've never asked that question myself. Um, I guess it does. I guess it, it allows me to say that it's not new for women to hmm. be seen as being bold, um, that you do have ancient ideas about that. Why is that important? Um... For me, I mean, I've always wanted to be a historian. I've always been enamored with the ancient world. Um, to me, it, it, I think the better we understand the ancient world, we can better understand our own, um, to see that things that we're not, um, 
that we didn't invent certain things, that we don't take credit, that we can see the long durée. Um, but I think it also gives depth to how we understand. You know, I, I get very nervous when students, I try to talk them out of giving one line, you know, early Christians said this. And I always try to get them to, they said there were many different voices. Mm-hmm. And I think as a, in my teaching and in my work, what I'm constantly trying to do is say it's never as simple as a one line. This is what early Christians said. Mm-hmm. It's always more complicated. And therefore, it's always more interesting. So maybe this leads me to um, the question that we ask all of our guests. What are your biggest questions when you're working on women in antiquity? Um, And these are questions that I can't, I'm okay asking questions that I'm not hopeful I can answer. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really driven to think about what women in the audience of Narsai, for instance, hearing about the boldness of the Canaanite woman, what they would have thought of that. Would that give them courage in moments of hardship in their own life? If they had difficult home lives, would her example have helped them speak up? Or did it help them um, think about their own relationship to the divine and to Jesus differently. And I think on the other side of the coin, I'm, I'm interested about men who heard these texts. Did it change how they saw women in their own lives? So I am always taken with the question about um, how, how these texts that have a certain ideal of the Christian life and so many, of, you know, whether you're talking about hagiography or homilies or poetry, it's filled with exemplar you know, exemplar and these ideals of what mm-hmm. Christian life should look like and how people translated that into their own lives of everyday Christians, not the extraordinary Christians. I'm always interested in the, you know, the, the, the lukewarm and the struggling, which is not new. <laughs> so what's interesting, among other things, in what you're saying is that interpretation, which is one of the things we started with, isn't just or even primarily about what do these texts literally mean, but the translation you just talked about is mm-hmm. that a translation into life, how oh, these yeah. readings shape us, shape right. the way we experience ourselves, experience one another, and so forth, right? So this is, this is a much bigger question mm-hmm. in an important respect than just trying to figure out what the text literally means. Right. I think, I mean, that that is at the core of my work and I also think one of the reasons I work on these particular texts is because we have such an idea of the Bible as this book that we have on the shelf and we can read it and look at it and one of the things I try to remind my students is that most people were not doing that they knew these poems Mm -hmm. they knew homilies and trying to imagine what your what your knowledge of the gospel would be or the stories from uh, the Hebrew Bible, if you just had artwork and poetry and this more piecemeal, but also much more communal because you're hearing right. it from the community. Um, but it would it would shape how you see the Bible and you would be living in it in a different way. You'd be right. living in these stories. Right. Um, they're not just on a text to be interpreted by scholars. They're for everyone. So it's striking to me that you're sort of setting up a dichotomy between virtuosity, mm-hmm. the characters that are portrayed in these stories, and the commonplace lives mm-hmm. 
of those who might hear them, interact with them. Um, <clears throat> and I think you're implying that there's a potential difference, maybe even a significant difference between those two. Mm -hmm. um, and it might be tempting, I guess, because of the antiquity of the material you're working with uh, to posit a kind of earnestness or piety uh, within the community. Mm -hmm. But I think I hear you pointing to the possibilities that that's not actually what's going yeah. on all the time. Um, so am I right in hearing these sort of suggestions? I think whether we're talking about homilies or um, letters where you have bishops speaking about their their challenges, I don't think we would have the same uh, kind of... I, I think there's a lot of... There are many clues within this literature that bishops and, and uh, homilists want to inspire their listener to greater um, holiness. And I think the same thing is true for poetry. Um, I think people were dealing with the same issues and challenges and struggles of faith that they are today. You know, one of the texts I love to teach is Chaucer's Wife of Bath, because I think you have a great example there of a woman who is living within these, these texts and within a Christian society, but also acknowledges her own failings. And, um, and I, I definitely want to have, want to keep in mind the range. Um, and also that the, the ideals that they're asking their listener to live up to are very difficult. And it takes a lifetime of, of being exposed to these texts. A bit of a follow-up to that, yeah. which is, and this gets back to something you said earlier, which is that uh, some of your biggest questions might be really difficult to answer. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it occurs to yeah. me that it's not a simple thing to draw a line from what bishops or preachers of some sort are saying and mm -hmm. exhorting people to right. and what's actually going on, right. right? So if we only have one side of the story, yeah. um, what kind of inferences can we draw to what the uptake of this is going to be? Yeah, I think one way that you can approach that is to say, well, if the bishops are really concerned about it and they're talking about it in their homilies, mm. then it's probably going on. Mm. So it's sort of a, a negative, a reading back. Um, but I do, I mean, I do think we're, we're listening to a one-sided conversation and we're listening to one perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm always cautious and continually reminding our students that we are so dependent when we study the ancient world of what has simply survived. And I think we have to be very humble about what we can say about the spiritual lives of, of Christians whose witnesses we don't have mm. recorded. Mm. But... We can know a little bit about what at least they were hearing. Right. No, that's that's what you're saying is really interesting in its own right. And I think that the careful way that you're trying to piece it together is it seems like that's the way that we're going to learn more about what kind of conversation we can imagine here. Yeah. Uh, we unfortunately are out of time. I'd love to hear more of your side of the conversation. But before we let you go... We try to give our guests a chance to make a public service announcement. So if, if there's one or two things that you wish people outside of your field mm -hmm. knew about your field, oh. what would those things be? Um, 
Well, I think, it, you know, given a microphone, I, I'll, I'll use it. Um, <laughs> to, I, I would love for people to learn more about Syriac Christianity and Eastern, whether you're talking about Coptic Christianity, mm. Armenian Christianity, um, because these are populations, uh, their descendants are still with us today. A lot of the Christians that we hear about in the Middle East, um, these are, you know, these are Syriac speaking uh, you know, they still use uh, classical Syriac in their liturgies and, um, you know, the history of Armenian Christianity, the history of Coptic Christians. I think we are so focused on Latin and Greek sources. If we study, you know, if you've taken a course on Christian history, those are the, those are the sources that mm-hmm. have dominated our histories. Um, and I think the political, the precarity of these populations in the modern world is very mm. uh, crucial for us to think about because they are endangered of, of not existing. Mm. And many mm. of the manuscripts that I work on, I mean, for Narsai in particular, there were there are four manuscripts of this poem. We assume two are destroyed in Mosul um, mm. by ISIS. Yeah. And that's so, I don't study just the ancient world. It, it's very right. much living today. So, mm. um, you know, I, I'll be t- teaching a course on Syriac Christianity in the fall. Um, so I think learning about about different forms and different voices, that would be the first. And then my second, what would I want people to know about my field? Um, I, I would love for people to read texts later than the New Testament. I think the New, I mean, you always see documentaries about the New Testament and people are very interested in it, but we have centuries and so much good literature from, you know, late antiquity itself. It's such a vital time. So uh, I, I'm dying to see a, uh, more documentaries on late antiquity and early Christianity in the centuries following the rise of the New Testament. So read some poetry. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, Aaron. This has been the Biggest Questions podcast, and our guest has been Aaron Walsh. Thanks so much. Thank you.